We're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 as we think for a moment about the crown that awaits us as our sermon title. Paul had a very special place in his heart for the people in Thessalonian, in Thessalonica. And as a matter of fact, in chapter 1, he writes by stating, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. I believe that the people to whom Paul was writing were striving to be the kind of Christians with whom the Lord would be pleased. And yet amidst their struggle to remain steadfast in the Lord, they were experiencing some afflictions or persecutions, if you will. And yet before them, as well as that which awaits them, is the crown of life. And they understood that. Notice with me 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Now the first thing that I would call your attention to is the fact that here are some people that welcomed the Lord in that they were receptive to his teaching and to the preaching that they have heard up to this point. Look at verse 13. Paul said, For this cause also thank we, God, without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as of men, as the word of men, but as is in truth the word of God which effectually worketh also in you, that believe. And it was back in Acts chapter 17 that we talked about last week where we read of the Apostle Paul spending some three weeks in the city of Thessalonica. Thessalonica, of course, was located in the Roman province of Macedonia. But it was there that he spent some three weeks preaching the gospel to those people. In Acts 17 and verse 2, Luke tells us that he reasoned with them out of the scriptures. And so here was the Apostle Paul laboring among these people, setting forth the very gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the fact that Jesus Christ had died, had been buried and rose again on that third day, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3. In 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 9, Paul talks about how that they had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And so here are some people that had accepted the very word of truth. They had been receptive to the divine message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And of course, Jesus talked about this in Luke chapter 8 when he talked about the gospel being ultimately being able to yield the fruit when it falls on good and honest hearts. Now, Luke 8, he's talking about the parable of the sower, right? Good soil. It falls on honest and good soil. Now, I believe that the soil in Thessalonica was indeed fertile at this time. So then also we think about their appreciation. Their appreciation for the word as well. Listen again to what Paul said in verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 2. He said, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the very word of God. 
Here are some people that realize the source of Paul's message, that it came from God above, right? God inspired these men to write down these words. They attributed what he spoke as if it came from Almighty God himself, and of course it did. The message that you and I proclaim today, this divine message that we're speaking even tonight, that has the ability to save the hearts and the lives of many people, it's God's Word that does it. You know, Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness so that the man of God, that's you and I, may be complete, that is perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The Word of God did not originate in the minds of men. It's not something that mankind had thought up. Mankind would not be able to think up such without having to make some kind of a reference to some other idea that some other man may have come up, and then it would be all bungled up and uh, it wouldn't be you wouldn't be able to understand it at all. Man hasn't been able to write anything that is even equivalent to the very word of God in any way and will not be able to do that. It's not something that man has devised of his own accord, but rather this book comes to us as a result of Almighty God. Now, with that in mind, in light of the fact that these people had appreciation for the Word of God and that they understood its source, I would submit to you that they, like us, that they stood in awe to what was being preached. They stood in awe of this Word. They attributed it being the very Word of Almighty God. The psalmist said in one, Psalm 119, verse 161, in the long ago, the psalmist acknowledged his reverence for the word of God as he said, My heart standeth in awe of thy word, thy word. It's only when we come to appreciate the fact that this book, that the gospel is of divine origin. I think that their appreciation for the word of God was tied to the recognition of its divine source. And in light of that, it's my conviction that they stood in awe of his word. And we too should also stand in awe of the word of God. Every time that this book is opened, we ought to be in reverence because it came from God. There ought to be a sense of decorum that comes with the opening of the pages of God's word. No wonder no wonder that the psalmist said in Psalm 119, 105, that thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my paths. And also I would suggest that in light of the fact that these people had appreciation for the word of God, in view of their recognition of its source, divine source, that they stood in awe of his word, but it also stand to reason that they want to be absorbed in the word as well. How much time do we spend on a regular basis in this divine book? How much time? The psalmist said in Psalm 119.97, Oh, how I love thy law. In it, my, it is my meditation all the day. 
In Psalm 1, verse 2, the psalmist says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate both day and night. You and I have the opportunity to open and to study, to meditate on the very divine truth of Almighty God. Word, would the Word of God make us better people? Absolutely. We know it would. It has made us better people up to this point. Would it help us to draw closer to God? You know it would. Well, you, it, it's very understandable that if we're in the Word of God and we're listening to God speaking to us, and thus we speak to God through our prayers, we're going to be better people. We're going to be drawn closer to God. One of the ways that you and I can become more Christ-like in, in our demeanor is by spending as much time as we can in this book. As a matter of fact, James had said, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you, James 4.8. And so our desire is to absorb ourselves, to literally be absorbed in the word of God, that is to have a great love for this book. I would also suggest that the people in Thessalonica, in view of their recognition that this book had a divine source, that there was an affection for this book, how much do we love the Bible? There was an affection, right? I mean, in our society, people spend some seven to eight hours watching television. There are a lot of people in our society today who spend time reading books and novels, works of fiction, literature, and just so on and so forth. We can go with the newspaper and magazines and so on. They spend all this time, but how much time do they spend reading the Word of God? Is it not the case that by spending more time in the Word of God that you will benefit or become more and more like Him? I think so. To be more like Jesus who died for us. Is it not the case that we are to grow in the grace of the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Yes, indeed. But how are we going to grow spiritually if we're not feeding on the Word of God? You know, Jesus said that it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, Matthew 4, 4. And then also it is because of their appreciation, not only just their affection, but their appreciation for the Word of God, right? In light of the fact that they recognize that this is a book of divine origin, they stood in awe of this word. I believe that they sought to absorb themselves in the word. It was a great affection for this book. And then finally, there was an adherence to it. Adherence. Look again at what Paul says in verse 13. He said, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Does the word of God have free course in our life? I would hope so. I would hope so. I believe that here were some people that were trying to live according to the very precepts of God. They sought to adhere to the teaching of Paul. And all of us would do well to strive to the best of our ability 
to harmonize our lives with God's word. It's going to be the very thing that's going to judge us in the last day. John 12, 48. You know, Jesus said that not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Well, what's the will of, Father, uh, the, will of the Father? <laughs> right here, it's been written down for us. So we would, we would do well. You know, one of the ways that we demonstrate our love for the Lord is by honoring his word. I think about children in the home where children are to show respect and their love for their mothers and fathers. And one of the ways that they do that is by obeying the parents by doing what they say. But what did Jesus say? He said, if you love me, keep my commandments, John 14, 15. John said in 1 John 5 and verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. Now, in the second place of our lesson text tonight, we read of their walk in the Lord. And here Paul reflects upon some of the difficulties, the afflictions that they were facing as Christians. But I want you to notice verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians 2. Paul says, For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus, For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they please not God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sin always, sins always, for the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost." You see, the church of Thessalonica was born in persecution. Go back and read Acts chapter 16 and verse 25 and following, where Paul and Silas had been at Philippi, and they had been beaten. They had been imprisoned. And then when you get to Acts 17, we read of them making their way down into the city of Thessalonica. And the Bible tells us that as a result of their endeavors, some of the people in that city had believed in the Lord. They put their faith and trust in him. And they obviously, as Paul said, turned from idols to serve the true and living word or true God. But there were certain Jews, Acts 17, 5, who basically had incited a riot. They stirred up a mob of people and thus made it necessary for Paul to have to get out of town. The charge was made in verse 6 of Acts 17 that these that had turned the world upside down are come hither also. And we talked about that last week. Now when I look back at the early disciples, I see individuals who were courageous. But I also see people who had conviction, right? They did. Who because of their intense for the love, their desire to serve him faithfully, literally turned the world upside down. They were, to put it bluntly, wave makers. Uh, Some people might say that they were troublemakers, but they were creating waves, creating waves. Their desire was to preach the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ, Ephesians 3.8. And despite their nobility of, in preaching and teaching the gospel, they suffered immensely. You know, you go back to 1 Thessalonians 1 and you look at verse 6. Paul tells us that these people received the word 
in much affliction. We live in a great country. And even though our country has a number of problems, and we talked about some of those problems this morning, but, we're, but we still live in a country that is superior to all other countries, at least from my vantage point. But one of the blessings of living in this country is freedom. Right now, you and I are able to worship God here tonight, or even online as well, as we did even this morning without the fear of any possibilities of people coming in and taking us and putting us in prison, putting us in jail or whatever. We have those opportunities and the freedoms bestowed on us to worship God in a public way, at least we do right now. I don't know many of us that have obeyed the gospel in the midst of affliction or persecution, but these people did. I have known people that as a result of their desire to follow the Lord, that they have been ostracized by other family members. There have been people that have been very near and dear to their hearts that because of their obedience to the gospel of Christ, they had cut them off. Well, the saints to whom Paul was writing, they were suffering. He brings to mind, first of all, the suffering of the Savior. And then he speaks of the suffering of the saints. In verse 15 of our text, he speaks of those who had the Lord Jesus Christ killed, as well as the prophets. And then he points out, they persecuted us. If you ever want to do a fascinating study, read about the exploits of Paul. The church at Thessalonica was born in the adversity or the affliction, and Paul was engaged in his second missionary journey. Now, when you begin to read and chronicle this missionary in, uh, achievement, this endeavor of the Apostle Paul, you will see a man that was willing to do whatever, to go wherever, and to suffer immensely for the cause of Christ. Just read sometime 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And notice the trials and the tribulations and the adversities that Paul had experienced. He talked about the anxieties that he had for all of the churches. Paul knew what it was like to suffer. He knew firsthand. As a matter of fact, when Paul wrote to Timothy in his second letter, in 2 Timothy 3.12, he said, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And in that context, Paul mentioned the persecutions that he had suffered. And so Paul understood what these brethren were facing at this particular time. And you and I would do well to be able to step back and really just to give thanks to God for those who have borne the burdens of our, our heritage, if you will. We ought to be grateful to God that there have been people in days gone by that were willing to suffer, to literally spend their lives in service for the cause of Christ. In verse 17 and following of 1 Thessalonians 2, we read of the wreath that these people would receive from the Lord. Paul said, But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored to more abundantly to see your faith with great desire. Wherefore, we should have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. Paul here, I believe, closes out this chapter in a state of happiness or rejoicing. 
But first of all, he brings to mind the separation that they had experienced. And the cause of that separation to call, according to Paul, was Satan, wasn't it? I I don't know how Satan hindered Paul from coming and spending time with these brethren, but obviously he did. But when I read the the book of 1 Thessalonians, it's obvious to me that Paul had a very special relationship with these people. A relationship that was characterized by the fact that, as I mentioned a moment ago, that he prayed for these people on a regular basis. When he closed out his first letter to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 5.25, he could say, brethren, pray for us. Pray for us. Even though that they were separated from one another, even though physically speaking they were not in company with one another, they can still pray for one another. They can still be supportive of one another. They can still be encouraging of one another. Paul's desire was to see that these brethren walked worthy of Almighty God, 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 12. And in 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 8, we find his sentiments for the saints in Thessalonica. You know, here you will read of him dispatching Timothy to find out about their state of affairs. But here's what he said in verse 8. For now we live, if ye stand fast in the Lord. Paul wanted to make sure that these brethren were firm and steadfast in their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. What is it that you and I should desire above all things when it comes to our brethren? Whether it be individually speaking or or corporately speaking with various congregations, our ultimate desire, our plea, our prayer is that they will stand firm and true to Jehovah God. As Paul said, for now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. When he wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, he said, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Why was it that Paul was so concerned about their steadfastness? Well, as he had wrote to those in Corinth, the same thing. You see, in that context, he was talking about the resurrection. And ultimately, all believers, all people will be resurrected from the grave. All will stand before the Lord and those who live faithfully will receive that home in heaven, that crown of life that awaits us. And so, in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20, Paul brings to mind that crown that awaits us. He says, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are, ye, are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. You know, first of all, Paul talked about his separation from the saints. But now he addresses his success with the saints. What was his success? How would Paul view success with the church and the saints in Thessalonica? Here's how. On that final day when these people stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, if they are found faithful, Paul said, that's our crown of rejoicing. That's our glory and joy. 
Here's what impresses me about Paul. Is that he was interested in taking people to heaven. I've said it time and again. I want to go to heaven. But I want to take as many as I can with me. I mean it. That's our glory. And that's our joy. And crown of rejoicing. You know, Paul didn't view things from a temporal vantage point. I I know that because when he wrote to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 18, he said, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And so in chapter 5 and verse 1, he could write and say, for we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For Paul, it was all about going to heaven and taking as many as he can with him. It was all about being with the Lord. Paul wasn't just concerned about himself, but rather Paul was concerned about all those other souls that were there taking as many people to heaven with him as humanly possible. And so let me ask you this question. If you want to go to heaven, who are you going to take with you? Now, as husbands and wives, that's our main goal. I'm here to help Teresa go to heaven. But she's there to help me go to heaven. And so with that in mind, we're both going to strive to get us to heaven. That's the way it should be. Who are you going to take to heaven with you? When you stand before Almighty God on that great and final day, who's going to be with you standing before the Lord? Who will be crowned by Jesus because of your influence, your encouragement, or your preaching, or your teaching? As a parent, are you going to be able to take your children to heaven with you? Are you going to be in heaven? Are they going to be in heaven with you one day? There's a story of a family that had a child at St. Jude's Hospital. On one occasion, a gospel preacher was with that family at the hospital. And the mother had said to the preacher at one particular point during the course of that child's treatments, and she said that their bill had already had reached $2 million. But as they were sitting in the cafeteria, she said that she wanted her baby, her child to live. But then she went on to say, I would rather my child die now than to live to be 50 and not go to heaven. I have the same sentiments. I would rather that my child had died as a young child than to have grown up to deny God, to deny us as his parents or her parents. That's what she was saying. She understood what life was all about. Who are you going to take to heaven with you? As a mother or father, are your children going to be in heaven with you? As a grandfather or a grandmother, are your grandchildren going to be with you in heaven? Are you going to live in such a way that they're influenced to live for the Lord or live for the world? You see, you're going to have an influence on them, whether good or bad. And hopefully we're giving them a good influence. For heaven, Are you going to do what you can to influence them, to mold them, make them into productive servants in the kingdom of God? 
I want to be able to stand before God on that final day of judgment. And I want to believe, and I do not say this in an arrogant way, I want to believe that there will be people in heaven because in some way I had encouraged them to obey the gospel, and they did, and they lived faithfully, and that heaven was their home. How many have I helped? We'll never know on this side of heaven. But hopefully, prayerfully, I had just in a small way had helped them understand and know what they needed to do to go to heaven. But here's the question. What about you? Who's going to be in heaven because of you and because of your efforts? Would it be tragic to have had the opportunity to influence others, whether they be co-workers, people that maybe you have engaged in recreational activities, whether they be people that have attended school or or had classes together. Maybe it'd be friends or neighbors, family members. Would it not be a tragic if we didn't do everything we could to take them to heaven with us? I've said this on many occasions as well, that I, I'm afraid that there have been some that have slipped through the cracks. And I think that I'm going to be judged according to that too. If I can reach back out to them, if I could have another opportunity to show them the way, I hope and pray that I can. I close by saying this. There is a crown that awaits us. If we're interested in going to heaven, and most importantly, that we are interested in taking others with us, that we understand that there's going to be some trials along the way. We understand that there will be difficult days and hardships that that really we might have to endure along the road of life. But of course, The main thing is this, is that we live in such a way that one day the Lord will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou has been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. There is a crown that awaits us. One day the Lord is coming. I don't know when. When he comes. Paul said, and to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall reveal himself from heaven in flaming fire, taking vengeance upon them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Second Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9. That one day... For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. Will all of us be ready? When we await that occasion, as we await the second coming of Christ, it may be that he might come in our lifetime, or he might come in your children's lifetime, or grandchildren's lifetime, or he might come tomorrow. He might come tonight. It may be that our bodies might be residing in the cemetery for thousands of years. We don't know. But we anticipate that great day. And we can anticipate that day if we know we have been found faithful in doing what the Lord has asked us to do. It might be that you're here tonight. Maybe you've not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe you have.
But if you haven't, you would do well to do as they did in Thessalonica. And that's obey the gospel, to turn away from those idols. Now, idols to us, we we always want to think about those little man-made and hand-carved things, whatever they might be. Idols to us might be a different thing. It might be our cars. It might be our homes. It might be money. It might be our best friend or something. I don't know. The idols could be a lot of things to us today in a different world. And that is that any time that we are looking at those items more than we would look to God, if we would respect those items more than we would God, they have become our idol. And those are the things we had to put away. And so if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son, the living God, John 8, 24 says that you'll die in your sins. If you don't, are you willing to repent of those sins, to turn away from them? Luke 13, 3, I tell you nay, but except you repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Acts 17, 30, in the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commanded all men everywhere to repent. Are you willing to make that good confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? In Matthew 10, 32, Jesus said, If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father, which is in heaven. But he said in verse 33, If you deny me, I will deny you before my Father, which is in heaven. Romans 10, 9 and 10, also very important, that with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Are you willing to go down into the waters of baptism? To have those sins washed away, Acts twenty two sixteen, To die to self, be buried in that watery grave, and to rise to walk in newness of life, a child of God. Mark 16, 16, Acts 2, 38, Colossians 2, 12, many, many other verses. We hope that you'll make that decision tonight. It might be that you're watching online and that you want to make that decision. Call me. Text me something. Tell me. Let me know. We'll meet here at the building. We'll take care of it before it's everlasting too late. But you might be a child of God and you wandered away. Repent of that. Pray that God will forgive you. We'll pray with you and for you as well. Acts 8.22, very good example. Simon the sorcerer, who thought he could buy the gift of the Holy Spirit, he was told to repent and pray that God will forgive him. And we'll, we'll pray with you if you repent. We hope that you'll make that decision. 256, I think, is the song, right? Yep, 256. That's the song of encouragement. Listen to the words of this song. And remember, Jesus is standing at the door waiting, waiting to come in. Are you going to let him in? I hope that you will. Let him into your heart by obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ or to be restored back to love.